I read that 54 million Americans were traveling this weekend, which is one of the reasons I stayed home. Uh, how many people have been on a freeway between Wednesday and now? Okay. It's hard to get anywhere around here without being on a freeway, uh, but I think more of bigger road trips. So I think of... Uh, being in a station wagon, uh, you kids don't even, don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, sitting in the, the back with my two sisters, watching my brother's head nod off as we went through the part of I-5 where there's nothing, which is virtually all of it, right? <laughs> uh, there's nothing to look at. So when I think road trip, I think I just want to get through this mess so that we can get to where we're going. In our case, it was either up to Portland to Grandma's house or down to the desert uh, to Grandma and Grandpa's house, the other Grandma. And uh, what happened in the middle, I mean, the highlight was McDonald's and Button Willow, and need we say more? When that's the highlight, this is not what it's all about, right? Uh, and at least on I-5, you can go pretty fast um, until you're behind the truck that's in the left lane going 56 miles an hour because he's passing the truck in the right lane that's going 55 miles an hour. Are we there yet? And we've got, we've got a really, really old road trip in our passage today. And uh, it's... <laughs> It's one of the classic and horrible road trips, really, of history. <laughs> Forty years, um, lots of terrible things happen, and this passage is no exception, which is why we're all excited about it this morning, right? <laughs> yeah! That's why I came to church, Mike. All right, so setting the stage. Ruth did a beautiful job of reading that. I really, someday I want to be able to do an impression of Ruth's voice because some of the inflection just gives a life to some of the complaining that I, I wish I could. I'm more a moper, and that was more of an active grumbling, and I really appreciated it. Uh, but these, these grumblers, they've been sprung from Egypt, where they were slaves. And they're on their way, led by God through Moses, to a new land, a better land, a land for them. And they'd really like to just get there. They'd really like the trip to be done with, and it's not working that way. And one of their problems is they don't have so much control over their route. And the reason they don't have their control over the route isn't clear from this passage, and so uh, I, I want to explain it. But before I do that, I want to just say, here we are, come on down. We're family here. Yeah, you don't even have to stop in Button Willow. Uh, so the, the road trip analogy isn't just because they're traveling. Okay, life is kind of a road trip. And if you think about your life, you may be in a stretch that you're enjoying. Maybe the restaurant that you want to stop at is nearby, or maybe you feel like you've stopped at it at the moment. Um, but to be honest, for most people, life is a difficult journey. And it's kind of one season after another of one kind of trouble or other. And we all face choices pretty much daily of, am I going to 
do life the way that God tells me to do it? And if so, how am I going to do that? So there's, there's the context. Think about your life as a road trip and where you are currently as we look at Numbers 21, verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. All right, are we there yet? Uh, the difficulty for this group of people is there's a highway that goes straight through this land called Edom, and they sent some emissaries out and said, yo, Edom, we'd like to use your road, and Edom said, nuh -uh. So they said, look, we won't touch anything, we'll just stay on the freeway, we won't touch a plant, we won't look at a flower, you know, we'll just... And Edom said, you know, no. And there's bad blood between these two nations. There really kind of always has been bad blood between these two nations, and they're going to have to go around. When their caravan gets close to Edom, they get close to the border, they see... What is it the military comes out? Edom's military meets them and says, you're not coming through here. We don't want your kind here. And so they're going around. They're wandering in a literal desert, and it's wildernessy, you know? And it's like that stretch, I don't know, Koalinga, you know, the, the fragrance in the air is not so sweet. They're, they're feeling impatient. Are we there yet? We've taken the long way around. I-5 was too exciting and direct. We've got to go around. It's no good. So I was thinking about this, and I want to kind of keep the analogy going, and I, I, I don't feel like I've ever lived any stretch of time of significance through a period that wasn't sort of frustrating. I've always been looking forward to that next checkpoint. Oh, we can stop and get a coffee here. Oh, we can get a meal here. We can just stretch our legs there. I don't like doing that on a road trip, but that's the way I think about life. So when I was a kid, I thought, oh, man, it would be awesome to live on my own and get to live the way I want to. And then when I was living on my own, I realized it was really actually kind of awesome that my parents had paid my rent and washed my clothes and stuff. It looked better in the future than it had when it was my present. Uh, as a kid in school, right, what's the best time? Well, Thanksgiving break's okay, but really because it's a portent of Christmas break to come. <laughs> Which itself, you know, it's going to get you to spring break, and then you're going to get to summer break, and that's real. But eventually, someday, there won't be this ongoing Every week we've got some new assignments, we've got an exam, we've got whatever, and it's hanging on your, over your head all the time, and someday I'm going to be done with school. And then I got into the workplace, and I was like, dang, it's like school, except they can fire you. <laughs> I've got projects that are due, I've got to work on the weekends, what's going on? Neither of those phases were as scintillating as I thought that they could be. When I was a single guy, I fretted through those stretches where I had no dates. So I'm not meeting anybody, I'm not seeing anybody, and doggone it, it's a wilderness out there. 
But then I got into a phase that was maybe worse, the bad dates phase. But what was worse than that was the one that came that was the, man, I seem to be a lot more into her than she's into me phase. So, okay, someday it'll all be better. And then, you know, I, I meet this amazing woman and we, we get married. And then I want to get past the phase where I'm still discovering expectations that I have for marriage, let alone the ones that she has for marriage, that I didn't even know I had. And if they just all emerge, then we could deal with them, but they don't come up like that. They just sort of, you know, oh, suddenly we are in a disagreement about something that I didn't know I cared about. But apparently I do. <laughs> it was so much simpler when I was single and not having any dates. So maybe you're a more content person and you're happy to live in the moment, you're more comfortable operating there than I've ever been, and that's fine. But I think every single phase of life has its frustrations. And furthermore, almost every phase of life, when we look back at it, there are, there are blessings, there are good things about it that we didn't appreciate as we were walking through the time, but we can see it when we look at our trip in the rearview mirror. So let me just ask you right now, if you were to say, Mike, what is my, here's my I-5 experience right now. Here's what's frustrating me about life right now. Here's what feels like it's been going on forever right now. What do you wish you were just done with? We're finally in LA, we're finally in San Diego, we're finally in Portland, wherever it is we're going and we're not going through these pointless little towns anymore. No offense to Kettleman City. <laughs> All right. So that's where we are in our impatience. What do the people of Israel do with their impatience? Well, let's look at verse 5. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Our translation actually masks some of the insanity of this response because what they say is there is no lechem, bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable lechem. There isn't any bread and we hate it. What? <laughs> when you find in a moment of clarity that your grumbling is self-contradictory, you're not in the best place. In fact, maybe you're having a tantrum in the middle of the desert. The Israelites might have responded to this circumstance by saying, I just want to get through here. How about you? Yeah, we want to get through here? Okay. Hey, Moses, let's march double time and get through this stuff so that we can get where we're going. But like me, they were not as constructive as that. Maybe like you as well, they're not just discouraged, they're bitter, and they're complaining, and they're blaming. They blame Moses and God for bringing them out of slavery, those darn evil people, and bringing them out into this wilderness that's bereft of anything that, that they're excited about. So God and Moses took them out of slavery, took them out of oppression, took them out of genocide, and any credibility that Moses and God might have earned by springing them from that and taking them on this journey with miraculous provision after miraculous provision 
it's God. You can say, yeah, they're not thinking straight, and clearly they're not. But what's coming out of their mouths is, you guys meant all along for us to die in the desert. You never had our best in mind. Now, this is a change. That's not how they started. Back when they crossed through the Red Sea, the book of Exodus said they had faith in the Lord and his servant Moses. Things were going well. Amazing things were happening. Woo! We're fully on board now. That moment is gone. It's gone and forgotten. The road's been long. Like, it's hard to say, oh, they, they should have just marched through the desert without any discouragement at all. Where was Mary Poppins to sail in with her umbrella and make everything okay? Well, what happened the chapter before this one is something similar. They were thirsty. There was no water. What did they do? They didn't blame God, but they blamed Moses and his brother Aaron. And they said the same complaint. You brought us out into the wilderness to die. They fixed on this idea that their leaders had malign intent for them. And however irrational it might have been, they stuck to it. And now in this case, you've given us no bread, and we detest the bread that you've given us. Why is your will so unpleasant to us? Why must we do what you say, given that everything you tell us to do makes us so unhappy? I want to warn you, that if you find that you're in a situation where there's not a single thing in your life that you feel like has value that God has provided for you, you're in danger. That is a deadly place to be, not seeing what God has provided for you. So these people are throwing a tantrum, and it's literal, you know, pounding the sand with their arms and feet, and God provides a shocking and sobering response that produces a response that's totally different out of them. So Numbers 21, 6 through 9, I'll just read the, the rest of our passage again. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. God precipitates a crisis. So these serpents have a burning, fiery, lethal bite. They kill many people. And I have to stop here and say, does that upset you? I mean, does it seem improper that God should respond to people calling him evil by sending serpents to kill, him, kill them? That's certainly a response that I have. Like, they said you were mean and now you're being mean. I don't think it's like that. And... I thought once about an analogy for this. I'm not sure that it holds completely true, but they boarded God Air, piloted by God, stewarded by Moses in Egypt. And they've been flying along 
And I think what we want to make out of this is God kicks the door open and says, out you go. You were grumbling, you're gone. And that's not what's happening here. What's happening here on the contrary is they're flying along and the people go, I can't believe all you have is apple juice and tomato juice. I'm out of here. Open the door. I'm not with your plan anymore. I don't trust you. You're evil. In any event, however I might have responded in their situation, what's more important is how they responded. And the response of the people isn't more accusation. It's sobriety. They have a moment of clarity. They're looking at reality for the first time in a while, and they say to Moses, we did wrong by speaking the way we did about you and about God. We know if you ask him to help us, that not only can he, he will. And that's what happens. So the way God answers the request is among the weirdest episodes in Scripture, in my opinion. Uh, we think it's a copper snake, even though the translation says bronze snake because of the wordplay uh, of the, the word copper and the word snake in Hebrew. Uh, that's not all that important, but the person who's writing this down is trying to communicate something, and they're using language in a way that you and I maybe aren't tracking with. And so all I can do is, is say, uh, if you've been bitten by a snake, God purposed for you to live. They didn't ask God to heal them from their snake bites. All they asked for is, get rid of the snakes. But what God provided wasn't just getting rid of the snakes. He healed those who looked at the snake. And uh, Jacob Milgram, my professor in Berkeley, said in his commentary on numbers, why did not God simply removed the plague as he removed the plagues of Egypt. The answer given by tradition is that he resorted to this means in order to test Israel's obedience. Only those who heeded his command to look at the snake would recover. Now, Professor Milgram was a rabbi. And as he's approaching this, he cares about the interpretive tradition that the rabbis had of this passage. And it's certainly true that in this circumstance, obeying God produces an amazing result. I think one of the things that we have to come to this with as, as modern people with modern ears in a culture that's really foreign to this text's uh, milieu, if you will, its context, uh, as long as God has to live up to your standards and your expectations for how he should behave, you are going to be disappointed. He is not so much interested in what you think he should be doing as he is completely knowing and doing the right things. Life is going to be difficult in a way that God doesn't intend it to be as long as we're fighting him on this. And the people of Israel recognized in this moment of a snake attack that they were in open rebellion. And their response, once they recognized it, was to submit to God because he was going to fix it. And 
I have to say that as a, as a pastor, it's amazing to me that Moses, who has just been accused of complicity in attempted mass murder, right? Like the, the words are still in the, the cartoon panel right before this one. That he hears from the people and then he goes to God, who they also accused of planning this mass slaughter. And he asks them. He doesn't say, losers, I knew they were going to fail you. I knew they were going to give up. I knew they weren't going to understand. He goes to God and earnestly petitions that, that he help. And that's what happens. What a leader. What a leader. And this, this isn't, like you could get a picture in your head that this is sort of snake worship. It's kind of a weird thing for the, the nation of Israel to be asked to, to make any kind of animal and hold it up and have people look at it. You might remember an episode with a calf. It didn't go so well for them. There was trouble that ensued. And yet that's what God provides. And I think that he did this because he knew that 1,400 years later that he was going to use this incident to help us understand what Jesus was about. The Bible isn't one book, right? 66 books, roughly 40 authors. We can debate that all you want some other time. And it, it was written over a course of centuries and over multiple continents, and yet it's got a theme. And we saw in the book of John when we were studying there a connection back to this theme of the serpent lifted up. And so in John 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus is partially referring to being nailed to a cross and set on a hill. And if you're a Roman, you've done your work because you've got the most shameful, the most humiliating kind of punishment and death there is, and there shouldn't ought to be any more of those people causing problems in your empire anymore. But... Jesus doesn't speak about this before it happens with shame. He speaks about it as though it's going to be victory. What is it? That the Son of Man, that's him, must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. That's victory over what? Death and the grave. Not just the junk that we're experiencing on our own stretch of unpleasant road. So, Jesus is pointing back at this thing, saying, this is an intervention in the history of Israel, and now I'm writing an even bigger intervention with an even bigger serpent that we're taking on. Now, all of those Israelites who looked up at the serpent on the pole, they died, right? So maybe they were sick then, they looked, they got better, but at some point they died. Moses himself never entered the promised land, he died first. And all the disciples who saw Jesus hanging on the cross, dead now, right? So what's Jesus promising for those who believe and follow him? 
not saying we'll never face death. He's saying, I'm going to give you a different kind of life. So every one of those disciples who died hit a point where they suddenly started living a life that was characterized by a joy and a hope that was ridiculous given that they were a bunch of ignorant, poor, you know, kids from the sticks following a rabbi who'd been put to death by the authorities. But they did so because Jesus gave them a new context for the discouraging difficulties that they were experiencing in the daily grind of their lives. He gave them himself. This is all Jesus ever has to offer you is himself. It's a reality that you get to accept or reject on its own terms. You don't decide what Jesus did. Jesus did his work. He took all the blame. He took all the fiery snake bites that you and I deserved, and he said, those are for me. I'm going to absorb them out of love for you. And that's good news, which is what the gospel means. And the gospel is that for those who look to him, who believe in who he is, what he's done, who follow him, Jesus takes the consequences of all my human nature, all my tantrums, all my responses to the garbage in my life and yours, and paves the way to our destination. But we've heard a few times over the past few weeks, he doesn't give us a clear road. He just says he's going to be on that road with us because his road to glory was marked with suffering, and he says that's what we get too. And everybody said, oh, that was sounding good until then. Because Jesus is offering a different plan. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Well, that's really easy around here, so we're already on a good, <laughs> good basis. And be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The writer is combining Old Testament scripture to say contentment comes from God's presence. So the people in the story were complaining about the bread. or They said there was no bread. They said they didn't like the bread. And here we are in the Bay Area. We're, we're whole foods shoppers. We say, I'm gluten-free. I'm low-carb. The bread analogy isn't working for me. But thirst is also what, what's been used. And we're hungry and we're thirsty for something that we don't have. We're hungry and thirsty because our jobs aren't as fulfilling even when we get the title we wanted, even when we hit the salary level that we thought we'd get, even when the stock options are coming in at the rate that we never thought we'd get them because it's so amazing. Yay. And I still feel hollow and empty. I still feel miserable with myself. We're looking for significance and fulfillment in that job that will never, ever come from that job, even if we get its maximum significance and fulfillment. Some people have people in their lives, in their families, who need something. And so they're hungry and thirsty for something they can share. 
So this time of year, especially as we're getting together with family members and we see the needs in people's lives, some of which are acknowledged and some of which are submerged deep below denial, and we go, man, I want something for me, but I also want something to share with the people that I care about. And in our John series, if you'll remember, Tim talked about Jesus telling people that he's the water that lasts, that gives full life. He's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. And if you think about the, the disciples who watch Jesus die, they don't look like people who have this, this water and this bread. They don't go away from there going, you know what, Jesus has died on the cross, and we didn't see that coming even though he was teaching that, but yeah, we're doing it great. Everything's going well. They said, what, what happened here? And it's not until they encounter Jesus again that things begin to turn. They walk with him. They eat with him. He reteaches them what he taught them before. And now there's a different context because they saw him die and now he's alive. And he's given them a moment of clarity and sobriety that they never had before that. But it gets even more ridiculous than that because they see him lifted up in a different way. They watch him ascend and they're sadly or confusedly or waitingly looking up. And angels have to say, the show is over, dudes. Go do your thing now. And they don't know what their thing is. So this fullness of life that Jesus has been teaching about, his own disciples haven't experienced it. They haven't demonstrated it yet. So where does the secret come in? How do I live this life? Well, once, once they had... Once they had the experience of seeing him rise into the heavens, maybe they rethought about Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. The disciples, you know, if you can step aside from the poetry of that passage for a moment, the disciples are now recognizing things that they could have been taught with words, but now they've seen it with their eyes, and they've got context. Is Jesus just a teacher? Absolutely not. I just saw him ascend into the clouds. Beat that. And suddenly they, they, okay, so they gather together and they pray. And then the Holy Spirit came to them. And it's after that happens that they begin to live in an entirely new way. Once they've been infilled by the Holy Spirit, they are able to experience contentment in everything that they do, despite the fact that they're continuing to face terrible persecution, they were waiting to see his face again. 
but they weren't doing so like Israel was doing with, with this frustration and disappointment and rebellion. So Jesus is offering to his disciples then and to us today a life that's really living, where the roadway is good even if it's kind of long and boring. Tim and I not long ago drove to Chico and back. Actually, Tim drove, which is good because it took about 40% less time than it would have had I driven. And honestly, I don't know that there's anything to write home about uh, of the scenery there uh, on, on the way out to Chico and back. But I had a blast, and it wasn't because the trip was so wonderful. It was because Tim and I got to talk about stuff for an extended period of time. It was the company that mattered. It was the one that I was with that mattered. I love driving I-5 with Karen because it's one of the few times that we have to talk for eight hours, you know? Like, that never happens in the rest of life. Something's always coming up. So, are you tired and impatient of the road? Have you gotten to that next phase of life and you thought everything was going to be squared away then and satisfying, but it's not? Jesus is the answer. It's not the first smile. It's not checking the next box on, box on the sequence of success. The answer is the one who says to all of us who are snake-bitten, I'll take that poison for you, and I will continue to be with you. What should you do about that? I'd say the first thing to do is assess. Take a long, honest look at your life. Are there difficulties that you are currently going through that feel like you're taking the long, painful route? Are you responding to those by lashing out at God? Here's the thing. If you say yes and yes, you're actually in a good place because at least you know what you're doing. You've got the best reason of all to hope, which is that you are looking soberly at a hard problem. Do you have a place that you know you're not obeying God? What would it look like to begin trying to obey him, not so that you get goodies, but because you love him and because you trust him? So this... Strangely enough, is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Uh, a few years ago, I, I picked it in a class to study a little bit more, and it just sort of stuck with me. It was 2015, which was not my favorite year. It was not my favorite year, in part because that was when I really got a glimpse that I was going to be in seminary for stinking ever. And the thought of not ever getting out of that feeling of I have stuff due and I've got to, you know, fill every spare moment with study, and I was not up for that. But what this did was it said the road's actually a good place to be. It said, what are you studying, Mike? Are you studying about the one who loves you, who came for you? Is this actually kind of a blessing, Mike? Yeah, it was. And I, man, my job. 
had a good job at a good company, and it began to dissolve as a good job. And the title that I'd pursued turned out to be kind of fakish. And the money that was coming in turned out not to salve over the torment that daily life in that context was causing. And it got worse before it got better. And because there were people with me who kept pointing me to the one who was lifted up, that road wasn't as show-stopping as it might have been. The day before Mother's Day that year, my mom passed away. And it's Thanksgiving. It's coming into Christmas. She was really, really good at those things. The thing that busted me up this Thanksgiving wasn't all that kind of decorative stuff. It was somebody talking about a show she liked on TV that I didn't know she liked, and I love it, and of course she liked it, because we like the same kind of stuff. And I get a flood of all the stuff that we could have enjoyed together over the last few years. You know what? I've spent the last few years being grateful that the biggest thing that we had a connection about was that she loved Jesus, and she pointed me to Jesus, and she loved me like Jesus did. And she set an example for me that I don't know, I don't know how you could go wrong that way. So... Even being married to a wonderful woman who helps me through the road, that's not the answer. It's the person who we share, Karen and I, who's riding with us, whose instructions we're trying to follow out of love in how we relate to each other, how we love our children, what we do in life. That's what it's all about. And man, over the past few years, I have definitely wallowed in some blame of myself and others. Don't get me wrong. But this passage has been really meaningful to me as I keep coming back to it and going, there's so much that I can complain about. And when I do, I stop being able to look at and listen to the one who actually loved me more than anyone who took me from slavery into freedom, who took me from death into life, who's always going to love me in the way that I need to be loved. So in closing, I want to share with you the obligatory Charles Spurgeon quotation. <laughs> I don't know that it's an official policy here at Church of the Valley, but uh, he he came to this passage and he got fired up. He said, if any of you have never come to Jesus, come now. If you have never looked to him who hung on the cross, sin-bitten sinner, look to him now and you shall be saved at once. If you have looked to him before, look again now and never take your eyes off him until they are closed in death. And even then, the eyes of your soul shall still continue 
looking unto Jesus, only they shall look upon Jesus sitting upon the throne of God as now by faith you look upon him hanging on the cross. God, I am so grateful that when the road is long, that you are there. When I think I've got it sorted, you are there. And when I am throwing a tantrum and blaming everybody, you are there. Out of your grace and your mercy, you allowed your son to be lifted up on a cross so that he could be lifted up to your right hand where his name is above every name, where all authority has been given to him. And I pray in the loving kindness and authority of Christ's name that we will learn to love him, not just because he was a good teacher, but because he is true and the only true teacher. Amen.